Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. Carrying out the nation's foreign policy and international relations seems all too relevant right now as the world quickly adapts to the temporary quarantines brought forth by the response to COVID-19. The State Department has been there helping U.S. citizens make informed decisions about traveling abroad. At the heart of the agency's IT office, of course, is CIO Stuart McWiggan, who came into the position a little more than a year ago. Recording remotely during our quarantining, he brings a perspective rooted in the private industry, with previous tenures leading health IT at Johnson & Johnson and CVS Caremark. We talked to McWiggan about his priorities and challenges he's facing in the new position, as well as the potential impacts technologies like AI and automation has on the agency moving forward. The impact of these technologies is an area that companies like our partners Dell Technologies and Kerasoft are focusing on. Hello, my name is Matthew Mdadi. I am the Regional Sales Director at Dell Technologies. Here at Dell and Kerasoft, we are seeing leaders in the federal government raising concerns around legacy infrastructure, collaboration tools, and remote work capabilities. And Dell is listening and acting. As a trusted partner to State Department, Dell worked with CIO Stuart McGuigan and his leadership team to implement mission-empowering technologies focused on enhancing telework remote desktop systems. This project included an implementation of a modernized software-defined cloud-ready infrastructure called VxRail. As a result of this VxRail technology, State increased their performance and reliability for the remote access system called Go Virtual. Their employees now have enhanced telework, collaboration, and communication capabilities. We're excited to hear from McWiggan during this unique time of mass telework to get a glimpse of how the agency systems are handling the shift and what to look out for in the future. Stuart, it's great to have you on GovCast. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So you just passed your one-year milestone as CIO at the State Department. What was the first year like for you? It, It was fascinating. It was fascinating before we got to these interesting times with the coronavirus. I have worked for large international organizations in the past, but none with such a diversity of missions and in so many countries. So it's really been fascinating. And I've been extremely impressed with my colleagues, both Foreign Service and Civil Service, their dedication to the various missions and our ethos as a department really has been impressive. What were some of the key policies or efforts that you have overseen in the past year so far? So when I arrived, I think we had a lot of the pieces in place and what we needed to do is bring them together into a more coherent overall technology strategy and plan, and then to accelerate everything that we needed to do for the department. Where we really focused on was key enabling technology with a focus on the field first, which is to look at each post and look at their unique constellation of missions identify the applications and data that they need to be most successful, then look at the level of infrastructure they need based on the number of users and based on the technology they require in order to establish a baseline and evaluate where they are against that baseline and work to bring them together. The second area really was getting everyone into uh, cloud. 
really understanding what it would take to get people onto email and collaboration capabilities in the cloud, the ability to manage documents, and the ability to securely manage remote access to critical applications. Doing all this work in calendar 2019 meant that we were relatively well prepared for this massive teleworking exercise. If we had had this COVID virus event a year ago, I think we would have struggled a bit more. But as it is, I think we found ourselves in relatively decent position to support the entire department being teleworking. Hmm. Piggybacking off of hearing more about your first year, do you think that there are any challenges that came with your position? So I think this is a challenge that comes with the position, but also comes with moving from private to the public sector. And the first challenge always is just learning all the acronyms. <laughs> what do all these letters and words mean? And that takes a little bit of time in the beginning. But after that is really understanding how the government plans, budgets, and manages very differently from the private sector. For example, understanding the concept of the color of money. In commercial enterprises, money is relatively fungible. If you save money on operations by investing in technology, you can make those trade-offs. Here, there, it's, it's difficult to tie those two things together. Not impossible, but difficult. And so when we go after an IT budget, there's a, quite a few extra steps involved in order to help people understand that the IT group isn't spending money on technology so that we can advance technology for technology's sake. We're really focusing on very specific mission enablement technologies, and the payoff is in the business. The payoff is mostly not in the technology organization. That's where the costs are. So how would you describe pivoting to public service? You came from the private before. Not only have you joined public service now, but it's at such an impactful agency like the State Department. So that must have come with some kind of transition period. Yeah, I think there was. But between the, the moment that I, I got a conditional offer and then getting my security clearance, I, I had an opportunity to really exhaustively understand all the publicly avail available information about Foreign Service, the history of the department, the uh, technology strategy to a degree, and the challenges that were, we were facing. And I would say the team did just an exceptional job in briefing me in the weeks and months before I started so that when I arrived March 25th a year ago, I knew more about what we needed to do than I typically do coming into a new organization. So so that was, that was great. And, you know, there are differences, but um, there are a lot of similar I was at Johnson & Johnson before, a large decentralized multinational corporation. And in fact, leaders of the department had met with the CEO of Johnson & Johnson and the head of HR before I was even considered for this job to find out how J&J &J managed implementing a coherent strategy in a decentralized and multinational organization. And in fact, our Department of State ethos was at least in part influenced by Johnson & Johnson's credo. And so there were actually a fair number of similarities between the two organizations. Hmm. And uh, how would you say that your previous health IT positions have played into your work at the State Department? 
Healthcare has been a focus for me, uh, that's for sure. But I started out my career doing AI research funded by uh, aerospace and defense agencies, ONR, DARPA, et cetera. And I've moved into a variety of business and operational roles. And so I've been in manufacturing, I've been in retail, I've been in property and casualty insurance, and I've been in managed care. And there was enough, I think, diversity of cultures and approaches and roles of technology that uh, there wasn't too much that was radically new coming into the federal government from a technology perspective. At the end of the day, the key to technology success is understanding at a fairly granular level what your organization is trying to do that it can't do today. What does it need to be able to do better? What does it need to be capable of doing and serving its mission and its customers? And then once you understand that, you can really apply technology with a laser-like focus on getting those results. That's the same problem every organization has. And so I found a, a lot of more similarities than differences, I would say. So you've mentioned before, or you've demonstrated before, that the importance of technology in the commercial sector is thinking of it along with your business needs. Why is that important now at the State Department? Well, you can you can roughly think of the activities of the State Department as falling into two spheres, our, our diplomatic engagement and then the operations needed to support that engagement, like supply chain, moving goods and people around the world at an incredible rate. Foreign service officers typically rotate with their families every two years and move to a new country. And we have to securely and safely provide technology and other goods to embassies all over the world so that, that, that they can function. On the operational side that supports the diplomatic mission and the people in it, it's very much like any other operation. We use technology to be able to reduce cycle times, improve quality, and reduce the cost of supporting those transactions. On the mission enablement side, we really are an organization that is filled with the world's experts on just about any topic that affects the conduct of diplomacy, that affects the interests of the United States overseas. And so what we do with technology there is we try to accelerate the pace of diplomacy. We support analytical groups like our Center for Analytics, which does predictive modeling to try to anticipate events. We use cloud-based collaboration technologies to erase the boundaries that occur with time zones and geography to bring together the very best and most knowledgeable team to address any issue and to give them a productive tools for collaboration and creating output. And then using everything from social media to internal communication channels, we use technology to disseminate those opinions, those decisions to accelerate action out in the world. And so technology is really at the core of accelerating what we do, changing the pace of diplomacy, but the actual active diplomacy still requires the tremendous expertise of our leadership and our staff. Excellent. And the State Department is unique in its reach across the world with diplomats and personnel located across a variety of countries. So how does the State Department maintain its network and IT infrastructure, as well as proper security protocol in such a geographically dispersed environment? So that, that's been long been the challenge for any multinational organization, and there are other multinational agencies as well. And it's a constant effort on our part. 
we can never feel too confident. I think a, a healthy paranoia is the right attitude towards cybersecurity. But we maintain a proprietary set of networks and we employ the tools that you, you would expect a multinational agency to employ without getting into specifics for obvious reasons. It's something that is first and foremost in our minds. And I think in the last year, we've made tremendous progress in making sure that we exercise good cyber hygiene all across the board from what employees do through the technology that uh, we deploy to monitoring. As I said, this is not an area where you want to be overly confident, but we pay a lot of attention to every aspect of cybersecurity and supporting the department. So, Stuart, specific to the current coronavirus response efforts, what is your department thinking about as it considers the way it's grappling with the security challenges that are imminent in some of the virus response? So in some ways, because by enabling telework and the work we did in 2019 to get people on the cloud to centralize support, to centralize identity management and enforce our cybersecurity processes, we're actually in a pretty good position from the perspective of both providing services and doing so securely because people are teleworking using a very recent infrastructure and systems. We have latest versions of operating systems, and I think we're in a pretty good posture from that perspective. So I think we have been successful in moving people to telework, both from an enablement perspective and also cybersecurity. Of course, uh, we have dramatically enhanced our monitoring and other activities that keep us vigilant to make sure that in this time where, you know, adversaries may be looking to take advantage that we are, if anything, better positioned than we've been in the past to be able to address it. But again, you know, vigilance is key here. What is the importance of a public-private partnership in tackling some of government's challenges? I mean, I'm an example in a small way of the interest in the federal government in bringing in a new point of view and different set of experiences. And I think, although I'm obviously biased, I think that's something that we intend to do across the federal government and something we could do a lot more readily and perhaps remove some of the barriers to doing that. I would love to see in the future that uh, somebody, let's just say, who's a cybersecurity practitioner at a large multinational company could come into the federal government and work in a meaningful job for three, four, five years, learning a lot because there is a lot to learn here about protecting your data and your systems, but also bring a different perspective on how work might get done and then bring back that expertise as a key value added for whatever company they work for. And so if we can make those rotations long enough to be meaningful, but a little bit easier to do, I think we can facilitate a lot of that kind of partnership. It's my perspective after a year here that there are more similarities than differences in large, complex organization when it comes to deploying technology effectively and protecting data and systems. And so I I would like to see a lot more in the way of rotations in and out of government service to benefit both parties. Great. And Stuart, I saw that you have a bit of an unexpected IT educational background. It's one, I believe, in psychology and philosophy. So how did you get from those areas of study to working in IT? And now that we often hear that there's a pipeline problem between educational and professional careers in IT, do you think there's a way of getting people from those diverse backgrounds of study like yours to help fill the IT workforce shortage? 
Yeah, no, that's a question I get a lot. And some of it's because uh, underneath those degrees, you can't see the technology theme. So when I was interested in psychology, it was cognitive psychology. And it was trying to see in a rigorous way how people processed information, how they perceived the world, how they learned, how they remembered things. And, and we used computers as a model for how we understood human behavior. And then when I went to graduate school, I was part of a cognitive science program, which at the time was interdisciplinary, but the center of it was artificial intelligence. And so I, I have been working with computers since there were punch cards, doing statistical modeling, doing AI programming, expert systems, et cetera. So I can't think of a time since high school where computing hasn't been a key part of enabling whatever work that I'm doing. But I would say in graduate school, thinking through how do you tackle enormous open-ended problems like natural language processing, which at the time, you know, was we, we were far from commercializing. How do you tackle those engineering problems in a way where you make progress, but you know you're never going to have the end solution anytime soon. And I think that mindset helps well when you're coming into an organization, a company, or an agency, and you're trying to see you know, what are different ways of looking at opportunities and problems than just the sort of back-end processing where we all come from. And applying that AI-based problem-solving mindset to thinking holistically about people, process, and technology, and certainly not just about the technology, but to advance the purpose of the organization. So I think that background, both the psychology, how do people think, how do they operate, how do they interact with technology, Technology. And what I learned in AI in the 80s and 90s really positioned me well, both for the application of technology and technology itself. I was doing machine learning models in the mid 80s. Now, they were very basic. We didn't have a lot of horsepower, but we were trying to figure out how systems could exhibit intelligence and use data to be able to change themselves to improve their performance. Very basic in those days, but today there are much better techniques. There's much more data. There's a lot more computing horsepower, but the basic mathematics underneath it is very similar. And that's what my background's in. So you talk a lot about AI and machine learning and, of course, the big data strategies around those. How do you see those technologies impacting the agency most, maybe in the coming couple years? Again, I think I, th I see them in two areas. Uh, one is a better understanding the flow of work within the agency. We're looking at things like how do we onboard new employees? Uh, what is the process for getting them reviewed and getting them a security clearance? And we're applying lean and process automation, RPA technology to those problems to see if we can accelerate the pace of the work that we do that supports the diplomatic mission. And then in terms of AI and machine learning, the ability to build sophisticated predictive models that help us anticipate uh, events in the world could give us a tremendous advantage in the field of diplomacy. So rather than reacting to a change in government once it's happened, if we can begin to use publicly available data and other data sources to model the likelihood that there's going to be an event in a country, and then when that likelihood gets to a certain threshold, bring the team together to be able to describe what we might do about it, use simulation modeling and other advanced analytical and collaborative techniques to come up with a set of decisions. And then if the event and when the event does happen, we're actually ready, we're anticipating it. So I could see some of the machine learning models that we have today in the context of diplomacy bring us to the table faster and help us begin to actually anticipate events as they emerge into the world and not just react to them as they happen.
So building off of that, given that you see a role that AI and data can play in predictive modeling and foreign policy, are there any other technologies that you see leading the nation in uh, foreign policy? I think there's a huge untapped potential in virtual reality and augmented reality. So in, in virtual reality, the ability to visualize complex relationships and data, we've been working on that for decades, but I know I think the technology's caught up with us and the ability to plot things in three dimensions and manipulate them, I think that's emerging. So on the analytical side, I could see virtual reality. Augmented reality means we can amplify the expertise throughout the field. So in our 200 plus posts, if there's an issue with the technology, for example, with the phone system, the, the ability to put on augmented reality, glasses, pull in the world's expert on that legacy technology and have them walk the technician through diagnosis and repair. That could mean that we don't have to deploy every bit of expertise so much to the periphery. We can leverage some of our centralized expertise while our general IT diplomats are out at post and actually conducting the work. But now they're informed in a very detailed and meaningful way by the expertise as it exists throughout the world. So a little bit earlier, you said you hope to see agencies have more similarities than differences. Do you see the State Department having somewhat unique needs in terms of its IT posture and security needs right now? I think there's unique needs in every agency. And I, I think one of the differences uh, for us is the sensitivity of the information. I think, you know, given the matters we get involved with, we need to be extra vigilant in making sure that there is confidentiality for the benefit of our leaders, but also for the benefit of the foreign governments and other interlocutors that we deal with. But one of the things we don't have is the scale of domestic operations that many of my colleagues do at other agencies. And particularly right now. When I think of the demands on some of the agencies that serve U.S. citizens with a volume of activity combined with telework, I mean, they're doing heroic things to make sure that their colleagues are enabled with technology. But I mean, that's that's some of the challenges that they have that we don't have. And, and quite frankly, I'm happy not to have them at the moment. If you were to look back on your time in the next year, what would you say would be your mission accomplished? That's a great question. And so it's not achieving any specific technology objectives, although we have those. And so far in the past year, the team has been exceptional in delivering on them, which is why we're well positioned, relatively speaking, for this COVID crisis. But what I really like to leave the organization is the, the means to adapt. And I think bringing in agile techniques, bringing in the ability to focus on process and process excellence, and then utilizing the fact that our infrastructure capacity is more and more software to which means you can scale it up and scale it down at need. So we have all this flexibility, and I'd like to leave the department with the ability to characterize mission and other opportunities within the department in terms that the technology organization can then say, ah, here's a technology approach that will support that. Let's use agile teams to be able to deploy that quickly. And then as circumstances change, we change what we do. And so if there's one thing I'd love to leave the organization with is more confidence in the ability to pivot when needed to recognize new opportunities and deal with new challenges. Well, I think that's a pretty good mission to have. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Stuart. Yeah, you're welcome. It's my pleasure.
Thanks again to this episode's sponsors, Dell Technologies and Kerasoft. We at Dell and Kerasoft are proud of the work we've accomplished with our government partners and continue to support the critical mission of these agencies. We look forward to being part of more conversations about the impact of IT modernization within the federal government. My thanks to Stuart for what you're doing at State to protect our world during this difficult time. It is our honor to be your partner and thank you for the trust you put in us. For more information about how we're working with agencies like the U.S. State Department, please check out delltechnologies.com forward slash federal. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you hear, let us know by leaving us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. Sponsor at